So we're on Matthew chapter 26, and I've titled my sermon, and I copied from the 25th anniversary, uh, it's His Worth, Our Worth. So if you're here for the 25th, you know that uh, it's His story, our story. Uh, so today it's going to be His Worth and Our Worth. And I'm hoping that we could all read a, a small portion of Matthew together, and then I'm going to take us through uh, uh, 26 verse by verse or ch- uh, chunk by chunk. You know, in Matthew 26 have about 74 verses. So are we ready to read 74? No, okay, I'm only going to make you read 15. Okay, don't worry. 15 out of 74. Can we show the first, the first uh, slide? Thank you so much. All right, are we all, we all ready? Yep, let's read it together. One, two, three. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar. Why this waste? They asked, this perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you. You will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, What she has done will also be told in memory of her. The one called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, All of you, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, for the reading of your word. Thank you, Father God, for the living word that you have given us all the way from the beginning of time till now, Father God, that we would cherish in our hearts. Let us not turn to the left nor to the right of your word. Let us walk true and walk straight, Father God, obeying every command that you have given us, Father Lord Jesus, baptizing everyone in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But this morning, I pray, Father God, that you search our hearts. Open up our hearts to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. May we be sensitive to you. May we come here for an experience of you, Father Lord Jesus. May we not leave here the same again, Lord God. So may your presence be in this place. May your power just be with me, Father God, as I uh, bring your word, not even my word. So we thank you, Father God, for your word. We thank you that because we love you and because you first love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. You know, um, the story of the anointing of Jesus is a very popular one. And if you're a Christian for a long time, even a year in fact, uh, you would be almost very familiar with the story about the woman who anointed Jesus at his feet, all right? In Matthew, it's called the woman who anointed Jesus at his feet. Matthew doesn't want to name this woman, all right? There's a reason for that, but that's for another sermon, right? But if you, if you were to read the four Gospels, the three synoptic Gospels and the, and the Gospel of John, you would you would realize that not every gospel would tell all the same stories. There's only going to be about 15 events or 15 different stories that are repeated across the four gospels, amongst the many. Like Jesus walking on water. You don't find that on the four gospels. It's important. 
It's a good story, but you will not find it across the four Gospels. Like, for example, um, Jesus healing the blind. You would, it's a good story. Jesus is our healer, but you will not find it across the four Gospels. And there are only certain very significant events you would find across the four Gospels. And the anointing of Jesus at his feet is one of them. For example, the birth of Jesus is one of them. The baptism of Jesus is one of them. Death of Jesus, resurrection of Jesus, one of them. Jesus betrayed by Judas is another one of them. And this is one of them. So when you find a story that is repeated across all four Gospels, you got to take note. Uh, you you got you to gotta, uh, uh, be more aware that why is this story so important? You know, when I was uh, preparing for Matthew 26, there, it's, a huge, it's a huge chunk, and I was always asking myself, what should I talk about? And for a moment, I did not want to talk about the anointing of Jesus. Why? Because I felt, hey, you know, we're all Christians. How many times have we heard a sermon about the anointing of Jesus? Let me not preach it. But then uh, I think the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, you know, if, the, if I choose to write this story across four Gospels, I don't care whether, the, whether people have heard it. I don't care people when he's talking to me. I don't care if you've heard it a thousand times. If it's repeated across the four Gospels, important enough, you can hear it 1,001 times. So today I'm going to talk about uh, uh, the women anointed uh, 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 at Bethany, at Jesus' feet. But I'm going to say a word, and I'm going to say this word, in the other accounts. Now what does that mean? It means that in the Mark account, in the Luke account, in the John account, it tells us different details about the story that you will not find in the book of, uh, book of Matthew. So when I say in the other accounts, it's for you to know that, oh, go back and read up on these accounts and go, oh, that's where he got it from. That's what he's talking about, all right? So I'm going to give you reference just in case you're writing notes. Uh, Matthew chapter 14, Luke chapter 7, and John chapter 12. Mark 14, Luke 7, John 12, all right? So this is where you find this story in Matthew 26, and then you would know, okay, so this is where he got it from. For example, in the book of Matthew, this woman is unnamed, but in the other accounts, this woman is called Mary. No, we don't know which Mary. It could be Mary Magdalene. It could be Mary the mother. Of course, we know it's not the mother, right? There's so many Mary in the gospel, but it's just called Mary. It could be Mary and Martha. It's just Mary, right? We also know from the, I think from the Mark account, that this woman was a sinful woman. Right? So there are going to be a lot of details that I'm going to bring in. So I'm just going to say in the other accounts, they told us this. All right? So go back and do your research. But I want to, I want to, I want to take us through, um, I wouldn't say line by line, but I want to go chap, uh, chunk by chunk. And I want to explain to you the beauty of this story. Why? Because I believe that this scripture, this verse right here, is going to be one of the more important uh, reasons why this story is so important. And it's in, found in verse 13. Truly I tell you, Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And I asked myself, why, why is this unknown woman story so important that it will be told throughout time? And I, I'm, I, I prayed a small prayer. I said, God, I may be an unknown man. I don't know if one day I'll be as famous as Billy Graham. I don't know. And I'm not saying that I want to be, right? But I really don't know. Uh, I, I may be an unknown man for the rest of my life, right? But until the day I die, I hope that when I pass on, Jesus will be able to say to me, you know, there is one story that Isaac Ling lived in his life, and it will be told from his generation to his generation. I'm hoping that, that my son would remember something about me that, that he's proud of. Because um, I'm 35, so you can just guess my parents' age, and they may have another 100 years to live, or maybe another 25, right? But I'm already remembering all the stories about my parents that I am proud of. Like, oh, 
when they pass away, uh, I'm proud of this. I'm sure there are a lot of stories that we're not proud of, but let's not remember the stuff that we're not proud of. Let's remember the stuff that we are proud of. And I'm hoping that when I pass on, my son will be able to say the same thing about me. And I'm hoping that his son will be able to say something about his granddad, which is me. And here today, this morning, I'm hoping that all of us will leave this place thinking that there is a legacy that you will live, leave with your children when you pass on. That one day God will look in your life and say, hey, Adam, or hey, Eve, or hey, John, or hey, Peter, all right? There is this season of your life. There's a story about how you lived that God is proud of. And God can say, this is the story of your life, that people will remember you as long as your memory shall live. And I'm hoping that we will live a godly legacy, same as Mary did, all right? So let's go through the verse. This is it. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now, there's something that you need to know uh, about the culture in, in the Greco-Palestinian world of those times. Uh, one thing is, if you have an important guest at your home, right? So now these days, I'm sure you host house parties. Uh, thank you. I would gladly receive your invitation, right? If you host house parties and it's nice, right? You cook for the guests, right? You, 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 you clean the house, you decorate the house, uh, you make a nice cake. And those times when you, and an important guest come, what they would do is that they would wash the guest's feet at the door because, hey, we, we don't have Jordans, right? Back then, there is no such thing as closed shoes. Back then, there were sandals. So when you walk on the streets, it's not tar, it's sand and it's rocks. Uh, so you will get all mud and clay and sand on your feet. So the first thing that people would do uh, uh, for the guests when the guest comes, comes into the house is that there is a bowl of water at the door. And say, you come in, we're going to wash your feet for you. And then we're going to get our servants to wipe your feet to say, hey, you are important. Come into my house, sit on the table. The next thing is that the guests would recline at the table. And, and the host would pour an expensive perfume, just one or two drops, on the head of the guest to say that, to tell everybody in the house, the servants, the other guests, that this is the most important guest. And when I'm an anointing him or when I'm bathing him or cleaning him with just one drop of oil, the oil would smell good and the whole house would, would smell good because of, of the perfume. Now these days, we've got house perfume, Right? I didn't know there was such a thing until I, I, I went to my sister-in-law's house and I realized, oh, there's such a thing as a house perfume. It smells good. I, I should want one. And then she told me how much it costs. And I go, maybe not. Okay, maybe I cannot afford it. Um, um, even if it's $100, right? Um, it's not something that I really, really, really want. But she anointed Jesus with the perfume. And it says in, in, in the Matthew account, it's a very expensive perfume. But in the other accounts, they gave us a more detail of how expensive it was. It's 300 denarii, or more than a year's wage. And I just want to bring to your light how much it's really worth in today's, today's age. It cost us 160,000 ringgit, that jar of perfume. And it's this small. And I, and I told myself last night that after the first service, I would go back and Google what is the world's most expensive perfume, what's the brand, and how much would it cost. I forgot until now. Uh, so I still don't know what is the world's most expensive perfume and how much it costs. But I do know that 160,000 ringgit for a bottle of perfume is, I believe, going to be more than what we can afford today or what we would normally buy today. And that's what she bought. Now, what's more amazing is that in the other accounts, it says that she is a sinful woman. Now, what this means is that she's a woman of the night. She's a woman of the streets, right? So she sells her body for money. And in those days, you're not a rich man. 
You're not a rich person just because you, are, uh, uh, you sell your body for money. We all know, and even until today, that how much can you earn, right? Selling your body for money night to night. I believe she must not have earned much. I believe that she must not have a huge bank account, a bank saving. I don't think she, if she has an escrow account with a Swiss, Swiss bank and she goes, I'm going to make a large withdrawal. I don't think so. I think 160,000 ringgit is her life savings. It's everything that she has. And she poured it at Jesus' feet to wash his feet. Now, my sermon title is His Worth and Our Worth. The question is, why did she do it? Why did she do it? Why did she took everything that she had and pour it at Jesus' feet? Because we know that the moment Jesus takes another shower, it's going to be gone. He's, he's not going to carry it with him until the day he dies. He's going to take a shower and he's going to go. Why was Jesus worth so much to her? Now, on the flip side, if we read this story in isolation, it's only going to be about Mary. But in the, in the Matthew account, it's not just about Mary. It's also about Judas, because right after that, the Matthew talks about Judas. Then Judas went to the high priest, and Judas asked the high priest, how much will you give me if I give you Jesus? Now, we all know that the high priest wanted Jesus. The high priest thinks Jesus is a rioter. Jesus is trying to uh, usurp their authority. So nobody liked Jesus. The authorities never liked Jesus. The Roman uh, uh, Empire did not like Jesus. So I believe Judas would have gone, could have gone, to the high priest and say, look, I can deliver Jesus to you. How much will you give me? Now, what is 30 pieces of silver worth today? It's 24,000 ringgit compared to 160,000 ringgit. I don't think Judas was a very savvy businessman. right? I really don't. If I was Judas, I hope I never will be, but if I was Judas, and I think if you're Judas, and you know that the authorities really, really want to capture this guy, you would bargain and you would say, hey, I want more. I don't want just 20, 24,000 ringgit. I want a little more. What about you give me five years worth of salary so that I don't have to work? Give me a vineyard of your choice so that I can always have servants to serve me. Give me a big house, and then every year you pay me a certain sum a month so that I can give you this man. I think that would be a, a better deal. But no, Jesus was only worth 24,000 ringgit to Judas. And Mary, the woman of the night, gave Jesus 160,000 ringgit. My question here this morning, my first question would be, how much is Jesus worth to you? How much is Jesus worth to you? And before you come to any conclusion, I'm not talking about money. And I know I'm, I'm putting money as a figure. But I'm not saying that you give Jesus 1,000 ringgit a month. After this sermon, I'm asking you to give Jesus 3,000 ringgit. That's not what I'm saying. So please don't get me wrong. What I'm saying is that the value of the gift does not lie with how expensive the gift is. It lies with the value and how expensive your heart is to Jesus. What is the value of the person that you're giving the gift to? Because you could be very poor, but if you give two pennies to Jesus, that would mean the world to you. Because whatever the gift is, the value of that gift does not lie with what is its value. The value lies with who receives it. For example, if I have a million dollars and I want to give it away, all right? First person to raise their hands, I'll give, no. Okay, no, just no. I, I want to, I'll keep my million dollars, thank you. Um, but if I have a million dollars and I want to give it away to, to two people in this auditorium and I want, to, I want to see what is my ROI, what is my return of investment, and I'm not talking about money, but I'm talking about my happiness. What is the return of investment? If I give a million dollars to a baby in the crash room, I want to give it to the baby. And I say, hey, I got it in cash, I give it to the baby. 
the baby will look at it like my son takes, when I take out my wallet, my son looks at my wallet and he takes out $1, $5, $10, right? Um, he has no idea what it's worth. He would just take, he thinks it's a toy. He thinks, hey, more money for me to play with, right? And, and the parents, me and Kim, were thinking, how dirty is this dollar that he's playing with it and he's putting it in his mouth, right? It's really, really dirty, right? He shouldn't be playing with it. But the, but the, but the baby don't know. The baby said, hey, hey, this is a toy. Let's play with it. Oh, look, one ringgit is, looks like this. Five ringgit looks like this. Oh, they're different toys, right? But what if, what if I say one of you is a 45-year-old middle-aged man and your wife is not working and you have three children and one day you discover that you've got six more months to live because you're hit with cancer, and you're stage four, and there is, a, a, there is the only cure that you have to prolong your life is, 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 is surgery or chemotherapy or some sort of uh, 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 hospitalization, but you have no money to pay for it. And you know that the moment you die, your wife will be without a job and your children will be without a father, without any income. And you have no money to pay for your hospital, hospitalization or bills. And then I come up to you and say, here's $1 million, no strings attached. Will you be out of the world? Will you be happy? I would think so. And it would make me happy to know that one, my $1 million is worth so much to this family compared to a baby. That's my point. My point is your $1 million or how much you give God a month in terms of money, the value is not in the money. The value is in your heart and who you give it to and how much that person is worth to you. Because you can give a thousand ringgit a month to God and says, God, here is your money, take it. Right? I want to I live my life how I want to live it. Or you can say, God, here is just a little bit. I wish I could give you more, but I can't give you more because this is only how much I earn. This is how much I have. But God, I want to thank you that it's only 1,000 ringgit that I'm giving you, but I want to thank you for my family. Thank you for my job. Thank you for everything. It's in the heart and how you give your money and how much Jesus is worth to you. You could be without a job that month, but you could still say, Jesus, I have no job, no income, but I still want to give a little bit that I have to you. Maybe 50 ringgit this month. That's all I have, God. That's all I have, but I want to give it to you because you're worthy. You're worthy of my, my serving. You're worthy of my praise. You're worthy of my worship. This morning, church, where is our heart when we give whatever we're going to give to God? Whether it's our time, whether it's our money, whether it's our serving, whether it's our coming to church week in, week out, whether it's our love for people, where is our heart when we give something to God? We could love people and say, God says I need to love two people this week. So you happen to be the first, I'm going to love you. You happen to be the second, I'm going to love you. And then the third person come along and say, I'm sorry, I'm all out of love. All right? I'm all out of love. Like air supply. Oh, good. Well, the second service gets it. You know air supply. All right. I'm all out of love. I'm so lost without you. Okay, anyways, right? <laughs> love. All right. I, I can't say that at the fourth service. Everybody's like, air supply. All right, he's not Sean Mendes. What are you talking about, right? Um, okay, uh, what's my point? My point is, or you could say, God, I have no money to give you because, hey, maybe I'm out of a job, but you still call me to love and serve you. And I'm going to love every single person that you put in my way, whether it's a fifth person or whether it's a tenth person. I'm so tired, but God, because you called me to love, I'm going to, I'm going to give, give it all to you in worship of you. Where is your heart when you give to God? Where is your heart when you come to church? Where is your heart when you serve God? Now, that's not all. That's just the first question. 
The second is, I'm going to paint you a picture of what it looks like in those times when Mary came to the house, right? So you've got to imagine there's 12 disciples. Judas was still one of them. There's 12 disciples at the table. Jesus was there, and Mary comes in, uh, 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 and Mary says, hey, I'm going, to, I'm going to bring this alabaster jar. Now, all the disciples at that time know what an alabaster jar is, okay? It's made out of alabaster. It's a stone. It's an onyx, right? So the moment you break the stone, you can't put the stone back together, right? It's, it's not the 21st century. It's back then. There is no technology to put a stone back together. There is no such thing as super glue uh, uh, back then, right? So when you break the stone, uh, 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 it all comes apart, right? So they, they saw this woman bringing the, the alabaster jar in. They go, okay, she's going to anoint Jesus. I'm glad that I don't have to anoint Jesus because then I have to use my perfume. Hello, all right? She's going to do it. Great, good for her, right? I don't know who this woman is. But then Judas said, oh, she's a sinful woman. And then they go, oh my goodness, she, what do you mean she's a sinful woman? But she's a prostitute? How can she be in the same house as us? She's unclean. And you know, do you know how dirty she is? Even in today, we're thinking, oh my goodness, right? This person had this disease or that disease or that disease. Back then, there was no cure for any disease. There's no preventive measures. They're, they're thinking, she better stay that far away from me. And if she touches my rabbi, my Jesus, she's going to make him unclean. And then he's going to be ceremonially unclean. Then we're going to have to clean him up. Does she know the trouble that she putting us in just because she wants to anoint Jesus? And they go, whoa, 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 can somebody tell her, don't anoint Jesus? And then she comes out to the feet of Jesus, and then she does not open the lid of the perfume, right? So nowadays, we've got to spray, and those times, you've got to open the lid, and you've got to pour a little bit of the oil out, right? So she doesn't do that. She breaks the neck of the perfume bottle. And they go, and I can just, just imagine the disciples going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. She's, she broke the neck. Does she not know that if you break the alabaster jar, you cannot keep the content? right? You've got to use everything in the jar, otherwise it's going to go spoiled. Does she not know that? She broke it. And she, it, the Bible says she broke it, meaning that she knew what she wanted to do the moment she stepped in the, into the house. She knew that she does not want to give Jesus just a little bit of her life. She knew she doesn't want to give Jesus just a little bit of her anointing, a little bit of a salary. No, no, no. She wants to give Jesus everything. She came in with an intention, with a purpose. I'm going to give Jesus everything that I have. And the disciples go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now she's pouring it on Jesus' head. And then she's pouring it on Jesus' beard. And then she's pouring it on Jesus' feet. And then she's wiping the feet with her hair. Can somebody stop her? In the other accounts, right? Mark says the disciples rebuked her. Can you imagine? You're serving Jesus with everything that you have and the disciples start rebuking you in public, publicly shaming you. How can she touch my Jesus? She's unclean. How can she touch my Jesus? She might have a disease. How can she touch my Jesus? Does she not know that this oil costs so much? Why don't she give it to the poor? How unrighteous is she? If it was up to me, I would be very righteous. I would have given, I would have sold this bottle of perfume and given the money to the poor. I would be so righteous. How can she do such a thing? And in our lives, isn't it the same? There was a moment in our lives that we loved God with everything that we have. The first moment you got saved, you remember that moment? The first moment you encountered Jesus personally, you remembered, oh my goodness, this Jesus loves me with everything that he has? Does he not know my past? Does he not know that I'm a sinful man? 
Does he not know what I did in the past, but Jesus still, you're telling me Jesus still loves me? Holy Spirit, you're telling me that Jesus still embraced me in his arms? Does he not know all the disease and the sickness that I have in my body? Jesus is still hugging me? What does that mean? How can that be? Does he not know that I, I'm a sinful man and he still loves me? How can this be? What kind of grace is this? Oh my goodness, I love Jesus. Now I want to go to church. Then I want to serve him. Oh, what can I do? You mean the church allow me to stand at the door to shake people's hand and to bring people to their seat, to usher people? My goodness, can I do that? Can I please do that? You mean the church allows me to stand in the traffic to say hello to people and, and welcome the cars in? Can I do that? Can I be of service to Jesus? We're so excited. We're so in love with Jesus. We came into Jesus' home. This is his home. And we say, Jesus, what can I do for you? I want to give everything. But somewhere along your journey, people make fun of you. People shamed you in public. Somewhere along your journey, and I believe I speak for everybody here, if it's not other Christians who shamed you, it could be other non-Christians who shamed you. If it's not other non-Christians, it could be yourself that shamed you. Oh my goodness, somewhere along the journey, how can you, what kind of usher are you? You're not even smiling at people. You are a lousy usher. I would never come back to church because of you right? And you feel so guilty. You feel so condemned. You're like, yes, that's true. I'm, I'm preventing people from receiving Jesus and you're a bad usher. And you feel so ashamed and then you're no longer excited to serve in the house. What kind of worship worshiper are you? You're on stage, but you have torn jeans. Excuse me, right? Do you not, do you not have money to buy a full jeans? Let me give you some money. Buy full jeans, right? And then you start shaming them. And then they say, oh yeah, that's true. I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not worthy of being on stage. I, I didn't practice my songs. I, I missed a chord. I missed a, 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 a note. I'm not worthy to worship. And then you start feeling ashamed when people publicly shame you. But what's worse of all, these are just superficial things. What happens when people find out about your personal life? Oh my goodness, how can I be a leader in my church? My children are not put together. The, the, the church knows that my, my, my 21-year-old son is wayward doesn't even believe in Jesus. Oh, and then my 18-year-old girl is flirting with every guy out there, sleeping with people. I'm so ashamed of my family. Society says that I need to feel ashamed. So when I go to church, I feel so ashamed. I say, I cannot be a leader. I'm not qualified. Look at my family. Or maybe it's your marriage. Or maybe you're a girl in here and you go, how can I, how can I be a, how can I serve? Look, the, the, the church knows that I, I come every week to, 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 to the church alone. And they know I'm married. They know my husband doesn't come with me. Maybe he's out there with another girl. Or maybe he's out there, he's not even a believer. I married a non-believer. I feel so shamed. I feel so condemned. How can I serve God? How can I give God everything, everything of my life, knowing that the church is looking upon me with shame? Or maybe some of you here are struggling with your sexual identity. And you're, you're so afraid to come out because the church is going to judge you. How can you say you are a Christian, but you're, you're a homosexual? How can you say that? Do you not know the Bible condemns homosexuality? And you feel so ashamed. You feel so judged. You don't want to come out and your love for Jesus goes down just a little bit more. Or what about this? You are, you are of certain age and you're still a single woman in this church. Or you are of a certain marriage and you still don't have children. I'm already 39. I don't have children. I pray for other people's healing but God is not giving me children. There must be something wrong with me. I must have sinned. Or I'm a single girl. No guy likes me in church. But the worst of all is, you are a 45-year-old man and you have not even found a wife. Come on, guys. Wake up. There's so many girls. Pick one. Or oh, there must be something wrong with you. All right? Girls don't get it as hard as guys, right? That's what I believe. There are more girls in church, right? You just got to throw a stone. You pick one, right? Just get married now. Now, Right? And then we, we oh, there must be something wrong with me. He must, he must be sitting behind closed doors. Maybe he's gay. 
right? And then we start talking about all these people and we start shaming them. And then they feel so ashamed and, they, and their love for Jesus just go a little bit, a little bit less, a little bit less. Or maybe you, you're a guy at, at the workplace and people are talking about you. How, how, you mean he's a Christian? You, you mean she's a, you mean I would never peg him or her as a Christian. Look at how she works. Look at how he works. Look at the work ethic. This Christian swears all the time. This Christian has backstabbed me, badmouthed me every single day. And this person dare say that he's a Christian? I will never go to his church. I will never go to her church. And you feel so ashamed. And you go, that's true. That's true. I'm the worst Christian. I'm the worst Christian. I don't deserve to worship God. God does not deserve my praise. God does not deserve my worship. I'm just going to be a Christian that comes to church Week in, week out, I'm going to sit in my chair that I love to sit every week, and then I'm just, going to, I'm just going to sing a little song, and I'm just going to hear the sermon, and then I'm going to go back home. What happened to your love? Shame is a powerful spirit that disallows you from giving God your best. What are you ashamed of? I can't name every single thing that we can be ashamed of here. What, what are you struggling with? I struggle with a lot of things. What are you struggling with? I'm sure all of us here will not escape the judgment if one, one by one we come up and say, I'm struggling from this kind of shame. I've carried this shame for 15 years. Yesterday, a woman come up to me and says, I'm a single mother. I'm so ashamed because my husband cheated on me. I'm so ashamed. I'm a single mother. And every time in Chinese New Year, I don't want to go back to the reunion because it always reminds me that everybody's family is so happy except mine. I'm so ashamed. And I say, you know what? That's exactly what the Last Supper is for. Because we can be ashamed. But why, why is Mary's story told from 2019 years ago all the way to now, all the way until Jesus come again? Why is the story so important? Because she worshipped Jesus despite of the shame. People and the disciples were publicly shaming her, rebuking her in front of Jesus, and she still says, you know what? The world can judge me. Society can judge me. I judge me. Everybody, my friends, my family can judge me. They can shame me all they want. But I'm still going to give Jesus everything that I have. Not because I am good, but because He is good. Not because I am worthy to give Him everything, but because He is worthy to receive everything. I can still give everything to Jesus. I will still push past the shame. I will still push past the insults. And I would still come to Jesus and say, I'm still going to look at you, the author and the finisher of my faith. And I'm going to finish pouring this whole alabaster jar full of perfume and full of oil at the feet of Jesus, not because I'm worthy of it, but because He is worthy of my praise. I don't worship Him because I'm a, I'm a sinner. I worship Him because He is sinless. I don't worship Him because I have never sinned. I worship Him because He has never sinned. I don't worship Him because I am scorned by society. I worship Him because He was scorned by society and He took the sins for us. And that is exactly what the Last Supper stands for today. The Last Supper says Jesus walked the cross, walked the road to Della Rosa, walked the road off Della Rosa all the way to the cross. Why? Because He took your shame and He took my shame. I've got to invite the pianist up to play. We're going to move into Holy Communion. And I just want us all to remember the second question. Are we willing to give Jesus everything that we have? 
and push past our shame? Are we willing? Can we? Can we give Jesus everything that he deserves and push past our shame? Oh, no, no, no. You don't understand. When I go to cell, I, I, I can't memorize scripture. I don't even know where the book of Habakkuk is, right? All, everybody knows where the book is. They don't even have to refer to the index. I still need to refer to the index on the book of Habakkuk. I'm so ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Everybody, at, I at one point needed to look at the index of where Habakkuk is, right? I'm very sure if you ask all the pastors, where's the book of Obadiah? Some of us will still need to look at the index, starting with me, all right? There's nothing to be ashamed of. Jesus never said, you hold back your shame until you got everything in your life perfect. No, Jesus says, you come as you are, all you, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest, Jesus. And the Lord's Supper says, his body was broken. He took your shame. Whatever you are ashamed of, everybody walks into the, into the house of God with something on their backs, with a burden to carry. What are you ashamed of this morning? What are you ashamed of? Is it because your marriage is not what it's supposed to be? I'm so ashamed. Is it because your children is not what they're supposed to be? I'm so ashamed. My son got C's. My cell leader's son got A's. My, my son can't even make it into local university. My cell leader's son is going to Cambridge. I'm so ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Because Jesus said, if you could put your shame aside, and if you could come to the feet of Jesus, and you would worship Him with everything that you have, He has promised to take your shame away. Because in the other accounts, Jesus looked at Mary and said, your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Not on Mary's goodness, but on the goodness of the Father. You think Jesus was not scorned and shamed on that cross? He feels for us because He was exactly scorned and shamed on that cross. Who shamed Him on that cross? Us. You... How many of us here would say that we are so righteous that we will not shame Jesus on that cross? Please don't raise your hands. Please, please don't raise your hands. I don't think so. All of us nailed Jesus to that cross. We are going to be the first one that says, Jesus, you told us to pray for the, for the resurrection of the dead. You are the one who told us that you can conquer death. But look at you. You're on that cross. You be dying. What are you talking about? You told us that we can heal. But look at you. You're bleeding. Where is, your, where is your head held high? And Jesus said, forgive those because they do not know what they're doing. Because I'm here. I could heal myself. I could resurrect myself. I could send legions of angels to take me down from that cross. But I choose not to because I deemed my sacrifice worthy of the cause to take all our shame. Why? Because He looked at us and say that we are worthy. We are worth it. He did not buy our salvation with gold or silver. We are not worth 160,000 ringgit to Him. We are worth more. We are worth a life. He gave us His life so that we can hold our head up high and walk in church and say, Jesus, I'm still going to raise my hands to You in worship. I'm still going to sing the song as loud as I can. I don't care if the next person makes fun of me because I'm tone deaf. 
I don't care if, if the next person is going to look at me funny, like, excuse me, this is not a karaoke session. Can you please lower your volume? I don't care. I'm just going to sing as loud as I can because that's what you deserve. I'm going to raise my hands in worship because that's what you deserve, not what I deserve. You deserve God. And God took every single one of your shame, every single one of your shame away. He died because of your shame. And He says, I'm going to take it to that cross. I'm going to nail it to that cross. And on the third day, when I resurrect from the grave, I am victorious. You can live in the freedom knowing that Jesus does not look at you as a bad husband. Jesus does not look at you as a bad son. Jesus does not look at you as a single mother. Jesus does not look at you as a bad parent. Jesus does not look at you as a bad Christian. Jesus looks at you as a sinner worthy to be saved by His grace and by His goodness. And He anoints your head with oil. He broke His alabaster jar to pour His anointing on your life and on my life to say, my son, my daughter, you don't have to live in shame. And every time you take the communion, it's to remind all of us that we don't have to live in the shame. We don't let shame win in our life. We let Jesus win in our life. Every time we walk in here, when you feel that brother or sister judging you because you're not good enough a Christian, you say, you can judge me all you want. I'm going to push past the shame. I'm still going to worship you, Jesus. I'm still going to raise my hand to you, Jesus. And that's exactly what the Holy Communion signifies. Don't forget it. It's just a reminder for us. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. That every time you take off the bread, every time you drink of the cup, you're saying, Jesus, I do not want to live in my shame any longer. I want to break free. I want to live in the freedom that you died for. I want to live in the freedom that you died for. In Christ alone, my hope is found. In Christ alone, I stand with my head held high. In Christ alone, there is power in the blood. In Christ alone, I am forgiveness. Not in my strength alone. In Christ alone, I am forgiven. So this morning, all the Holy Spirit wants to do is to say that as we take the Holy Communion, can we just put our shame aside? Put it aside. And say, God, you deserve all my praise. You deserve it all. You deserve all my worship. If I don't feel like coming to church this week, I'm still going to come. I don't feel like coming to cell, I'm still going to come. I don't feel like serving, I'm still going to serve. I don't feel like raising my hands, I'm still going to raise. I don't feel like singing, I'm still going to sing. Not because we can do it, but because He is good. Can I just invite the communion men to come up? And they're going to serve. Communion. And as you take your cup, and as you take your wafer, I'm going to give us all two minutes of silence. Just to come before God and say, God, Take away my shame. I'm tired of being ashamed of who I am. I'm tired of being ashamed of what I did because everybody have a past. Everybody here have a past. Beginning with me, I have a past. I can tell you all the things that I've done wrong. I can tell you all the things that, that I've made mistakes. I have done it wrong. Look into my life. If you're close enough to me, you would see all the wrong that I've done. You see all the mistakes that I've done. But every time I stand up and talk about the love of Jesus, it's not because I am perfect. It's not because I'm better than you. It's because I'm just telling you that if God can free me from my shame, God can free you from your shame. 
and that is the Holy Communion. Just remember that God died to take away your shame. So as you take your cup and you take your wafer, nail your shame to that cross and say, I will be ashamed no more. I want to be ashamed no more. If this is a five-year journey for me to not be ashamed, let it be a five-year journey. If this is a five-minutes journey, let it be a five-minutes journey. If this is going to be a lifelong journey, let it be a lifelong journey to say that you can raise your head up high in this church, in SIBKL, because in this church, God loves you. In this church, we're not going to shame you. We're not going to judge you because everybody have a past and everybody have made mistakes. But we want to love you because we have also been loved by God. Thank you, Jesus. Some of you have already gotten your cups and your wafer. I'm just going to give two minutes of silence. Take your praise to God, whatever it is. May the Holy Spirit lead you. It's only between you and God, you and the Holy Spirit. Take your praise to God. Thank you, Jesus. feel like some of you have children and you're worried about their sexual identity this morning oh is my son gay was my daughter a lesbian is she gay and you feel ashamed because you're a professing Christian but can I just encourage you release that to God you may be ashamed because your children not married yet and their biological clock is running out and you're worried who's going to look after him or her in his old age can you bring your problems to God says God you took away my shame if you are a backslidden Christian You feel ashamed sometimes to come back to church because you think people are going to look at you and say, where have you been for the last 10 years? You fell away from Christ. You feel judged. Can I just say, nobody's judging you. Not in this church. Nobody's judging you. Take it to God. It says, God, if it takes me 10 years to run back into your arms, I would rather it takes me 10 years rather than never running back into your arms. God still loves you. Thank you, Jesus. The Holy Communion is taken in the body of believers. 
people who believe in the death of Jesus Christ and people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What I'm going to do next is I'm going to invite everybody to say a sinner's prayer with me. I don't know if you have, are Christian or you're not a Christian, but I invite you to know that Jesus loves you this morning and He wants you to invite Him into your life. He wants you to confess that He is your personal Lord and Savior. He wants to come into your life and take away your shame and bear it on that cross and give you the freedom that you deserve to live in. And if you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I invite you to say the sinner's prayer along with me and along with every single person here in this church. I invite you. And if it is your first time saying the sinner's prayer, if it is your first time receiving Jesus into your life, after the prayer, I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. All you need to do is raise your hands. You don't have to come on forward because we're going to take the Holy Communion together. You just have to raise your hands and a leader will mark you and we will come to speak to you after the service. Thank you, Jesus. So I'm going to say the sinner's prayer and invite everybody to say it together with me. Dear Jesus, Dear Jesus I, confess I confess that I am a sinner. I'm, a sinner. I'm, full, of shame. I'm full of shame. I've done wrong. I've, done wrong. I've made mistakes. I've made mistakes. But, thank you, but thank you, Jesus, because you bore my shame, you bore my shame. On, that cross. on that cross. You bore my mistakes, you bore my mistakes. On, that cross. on that cross. You bore my wrong. On that cross, you died for my sins. And on the third day, you rose again to be seated at the right hand of our Heavenly Father, welcoming us home. So I believe in you, Jesus. Take my shame, Jesus, and help me live in the freedom that you died for. Jesus name. Jesus name. Amen. Amen. If any one of you here prayed that prayer for the first time or you received Jesus into your life for the first time, could you do me a favor by raising your right hand up high so that I can see you, so that we can see you, some of our leaders will see you. If you prayed and you want Jesus to come into your life for the first time, could you raise your hand up high, your right hand up high so that we can see you, so that I can see you. I'll just give you 30 more seconds. If that is you, can I just encourage you to raise your hands right high? We would love to welcome you into the body of Christ. Thank you, Jesus. We're all believers here. Excellent. Let me conduct the Holy Communion. Thank you, Jesus, Father God, for your body that was broken for us, for your body that was whipped for us. You were spit on, you were mocked, you were scorned, you were insulted, you were shamed on our behalf. I thank you, Lord Jesus, and by your stripes, we are healed. By your stripes, our mind is healed, our body is healed, our soul is healed, our heart is healed, our spirit is healed. We thank you, Jesus, that we're going to walk in the freedom that you died for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's take up the wafer. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood that was spilled, represented by the cup that we're about to drink. Thank you, Jesus, that your blood was spilled on our account for the forgiveness of our sins, for the cleansing of our unrighteousness, for the forgiveness of our transgressions, for the forgiveness of our iniquities. And you wash us clean, white as snow, Lord Jesus Christ, that we are no longer ashamed to praise you, no longer ashamed to sing your praises, no longer ashamed to pray, no longer ashamed to come to church, no longer ashamed to be released into the freedom that you have died for. So we thank you, Father God, for your cup 
that was spilled on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's take up the cup. Thank you, Father God. Now in this portion of service, the communion man will not come and collect the cups. Can I just invite you to hold on to your cups and throw it outside after the service? But if you, if the Holy Spirit did touch you this morning, I want us all to rise. We're just going to sing a closing hymn. Because after the Last Supper, Jesus said, and they sung a hymn at the Mount of Olives. And we're going to sing a hymn to Jesus that in Christ alone. And we're going to give Him everything that we have. We're going to sing like there is no tomorrow. We're going to sing like we've never sung before. And we're going to raise our hands to Jesus. We thank you, God.